Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is poet Jamie Ringleb, an assistant professor of English at Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina. Ringleb's debut collection, So Tall It Ends in Heaven, was published by Tin House in 2022. Ringleb's poems have appeared in Poetry, Kenyan Review, Gulf Coast, and Plowshares, among other venues. Ringleb has received an Academy of American Poets Prize, scholarships to the Breadloaf Writers' Conference and the Sewanee Writers' Conference, and fellowships to the Kenyan Review Writers' Workshop and the Lambda Literary Writers' Retreat. Ringleb is an alumni of the UO's creative writing program where they earned their MFA. In January 18, on January 18th, 2023, Ringleb will give a reading with poet Alicia Pierre Muhammad as a guest of University of Oregon's creative writing program. Thanks, Jamie, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with your background. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to your vocation as a writer. Mm, um, I think it probably started when I was a teenager. I don't know if mine is a, a terribly different story from a lot of um, uh, young writers, but when I was a teenager, I had a kind of handy combination of nerdily obsessed with literature and also a little bit on the sad side and used initially poetry and even, you know, in some ways contemporarily poetry in order to kind of navigate or understand the um uh, I don't know, the complexities or the things that I just didn't understand of that, of that grief and various things that were going on in my life. Um, and so that led me into the kind of like passionate pursuit of language as this kind of psychological unfolder and processor. Um, and then, you know, the, the poems that I encountered, the collections that I encountered, the poets that I encountered from there on kind of kept me afloat and showed me a way of, of making it a life. Um, so that's, that's how I got here. So I mentioned that you earned your MFA at the University of Oregon. Are there any notable experiences or lessons from your time at U of O that seem now particularly formative for your work or your style as a poet? I, you know, I, I know that that this type of an interview might lend itself to being particularly like, oh, you owe, you owe, you owe. Um, but I really couldn't count them, honestly. Um, there have been so many different lessons and conversations that I have kept really close to me as I've continued my studies. Um, and that's with, with each of the poets with whom I work, Danny, Jerry, and Garrett, um, uh, different kind of voices of theirs that I have in my head as I'm composing a poem, as I'm planning a lesson for my own teaching, um, or very handily in my you know PhD coursework and comprehensive <laughs> exams, um, they really, taught me what poetry is in a way that I did not have a foundation for before. And I can really only say that I'm building from that um, grounding foundation. You, you just mentioned that in addition to having an MFA, you have a PhD. I do. Yeah. Why, why was that? Why, why did that make sense to you? Why, why, why was that the right thing for you to do to get both of those degrees? <laughs> I don't know that I would say that it made sense for me. Um, uh, I, at the time, wanted to extend um, the experience of the MFA. Um, and I felt like I had the kind of strong beginnings of kind of these foundations, I keep using these terms, um, of a manuscript and wanted um, both time and a structure to kind of build on that. Um, and from what I was able to gather 
of the options available to me, the PhD um, was uh, going to help me um, most with that. It was unexpected. The, one of the kind of unexpected parts of it is that it really um, uh, pushed me towards a lot of kind of professionalization. Um, at UO, I um, was able to focus in almost exclusively on craft. I was kind of like, you know, kind of bent over the, the, the desk, kind of absorbing and processing and, and reconfiguring um, it all. In the PhD, it, it really pushed me into kind of like, okay, here's what it means to do this. Um, out in the world and especially within academic environments. So that so was kind of different. About, sorry, let, let's talk about the, the your first volume, So Tall It Ends in Heaven. So, I mean, they're lyric poems on the one hand, but collectively they sort of trace a narrative arc. Yeah. Could you say, could you give us a kind of overview of, of that arc, of that narrative arc? Sure. Um, so after um, the failure of a marriage, um, the uh, kind of speaker behind this narrative um, arc um, reevaluates a lot of the ways that um, he thinks about love um, and finds at the origin of that um, his his relationship with his father. Um, and so the book be, becomes this kind of kind of quest or journey to go back and um, uh, bridge the gap um, in the relationship that the speaker has with his father, which is kind of doubly alienated in part because his father lives in a different country and continent. Um, and um, because of the difficulty of their relationship um, in terms of the father's uh, initial inability to accept the fact of his son's sexuality. Would you be willing to read us the first poem in the volume? Maybe sure. Sure, absolutely. Maybe you are a certain man. Maybe you want a good man to keep. A man, it happens, with a troublesome neighbor, a neighbor with a dog, a good dog. And the neighbor smokes too much. One night falls asleep smoking, and his mattress goes up. Soon the room. Still, the dog won't leave. It paces, belly aching in the hall. But your good man, no doubt, bounds in. And you are there, frozen, out on the lawn without even words to help. Maybe he's got the dog slung over his shoulders. Maybe he's kicking out walls. He's finding a way back, all ragged and covered in slag. Maybe you want a good man, but you will have to break him. You will have to make fire and, like a dog, wake him in the night only to reassure him you are there. He must be certain you are always there with him in the burning house. Thank you so much for reading that poem. Can we talk a little bit about this idea of breaking him? Yeah. Um, obviously the, the, the term is from the treatment of horses. How do you understand the way that that functions in this image of, in this relationship that the poem evokes. Yeah, um, to a certain extent, ironically, which is to say, you know, I don't think that the health, the the poem in in saying that is 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 producing a healthy message. <laughs> I don't. I want to make clear. I don't believe that. In order to find a good man, you have to break him like a horse. Um, but there is. 
um, this impasse on the part of the this kind of you know nebulous speaker um, who's speaking to the you who's like also the speaker. It's a little murky. Um, uh, saying um, that you feel you have to do this. You feel that you have to um, control to a certain extent, um, but also make um, dire, make violent, um, and make within that inevitable direness and violence an environment um, in which you play your part and you exercise then um, your, your control. This becomes then for the kind of rest of the book, a kind of shadow of the speakers, what I need to get over, you know, um, this, this kind of expectation of a kind of pain or violence um, and the expectation to be able to control given that. That's fascinating, fascinating. And it, it, it sort of gets to my next question. So the volume includes four poems that announce themselves as love poems. Mm -hmm. Yet none of them are straightforwardly about romantic love in any kind of what you might expect from the fact that they they all have love love poem in their title. Um, um, you've already started to answer my question, but can you say a little bit more about the problem of love overall in the volume? Yeah, um, the speaker doesn't know how to get it and may not really even know what it is or what its appropriation uh, appro i'm sorry appropriate variations um are um and so maybe does act some appropriations of others love in that um i i think the problem of love for the speaker is is an inability ultimately to recognize it the speaker sees love as a violent landscape um in many ways because that's a very kind of inevitably queer dilemma in many situations, um, you know, queer individuals for saying how or who they love um, are then ousted from various um, familial or social structures in which they find themselves. And so one of the things I like saying about the book is that in many ways, it's a, a way of, you know, saying or a, a speaker asking themselves how to say love without also signifying this kind of grief. Um, without signifying this kind of loss. And so a love poem for the speaker is also a grief poem, is also a poem about um, loss because the word has been almost renamed. That said, the, the arc or the trajectory of the poem is toward one kind of a, a proper re-renaming um, if, if such a thing exists. Um, and that is in self-love, that final poem. The one that's just called love poem. Yeah. yeah. So... You've spoken a couple of times about the volume is kind of tracing various journeys that the speaker uh, takes or is attempting to take. And you also just spoke a moment ago, you used uh, the term environment to talk about the speaker's relationship to love. And I'm in place and space in the volume because the the, the poems take place in a number of different places. There's poems that take place in Oregon and North Carolina and Florida and in Italy. And there's, it's also a, a volume that traces a kind of ge geographical journey as well as a kind of spiritual or emotional journey. Say a little bit more about how you think about space and place in your verse. I think about it a lot in terms of belonging and also a lot in terms of Oh, I wish I had a neat little word for this. 
Um, I think my closest approximation is kind of like epiphany. Um, one of the terms that I used a lot at Oregon, especially with um, Garrett, was surmise, this kind of ability to use a space in order to um, come to a conclusion. And this speaker is very much desperate for conclusion um, and inclusion. Um, and so there's a way in which these different spaces loaded with, you know, Oregon is a very different environment for queer people than rural South Carolina. Um, and, you know, this is all kind of doubly true of um, an American queer person in Northern Italy, which is by comparison to the South, um, politically very conservative. Um, and so there's, uh, there's that kind of component to it as well. How does the speaker kind of reclaim um, staple, um, you know, epiphanies, conclusions, truths, um, within each of these spaces, which are integral to his life socially, familially. Um, and, uh, you know, in the case of Oregon, um, although it's not very loud in the book, educationally, um, how do I kind of like make room for myself in that? Um, and how do I kind of take each of those with me as I, as I go? It becomes the kind of question constantly for the speaker. So one of the ways that this um, geographical journey is charted is through the speaker's um, complex relationship to uh, the religious tradition uh, that the speaker was raised in, and yeah. obviously the part of the father's problem with the speaker's sexuality has to do with the father's Catholicism. Right. And uh, so there's there's a whole set of uh, engagements with the father both the literal father and the holy father yeah um and there's also similar periodic engagements with the pagan tradition the mythology of the greek and roman traditions as well the literary traditions um this journey through space and place is also a kind of journey through cultural traditions of various sorts yeah can you say a little bit about the way that the speaker navigates through, in particular, the kind of strictures uh, and also the the imagery of Catholicism uh, and how that works out in this journey that the speaker takes. Yeah, um, a lot of it is kind of included in the idea of belonging. Um, what does it mean to have been raised by and then rejected by an ideology? Um, what does it mean to be fluent in a language that you're not allowed to speak anymore um, or that you're not allowed to believe? I don't know how to close that, <laughs> that metaphor. Um, but um, that becomes uh, the kind of central focus there. There is this constant effort on the speaker's part to reanimate God for um, himself um, and to give his own narrative or interaction to um, God to kind of create a narrative that can be part of um, a story that is somehow an acceptable iteration of their relationship, um, the speakers and gods. Um, and that goes very poorly um, for the speaker. Um, and so, you know, maybe as a result, but also just kind of um, incidentally or by way of um, their other kind of, you know, different languages, their different kind of cultural um, uh, learning um, 
they they incorporate these these other kind of um, considerations as well, the Greek mythology, um, and and so forth. There's a way in which the speaker though is always trying to understand um, themselves through a kind of unabandoned framework of Catholicism. Um, there is this kind of like I can't quite shake this inevitable way of seeing the world and understanding the world. There's a kind of loud trilogy or um, um, well, trilogy to a certain extent, but the um, the kind of triad right, of um, uh, the father, capital F. Trinity, the Trinity. Trinity, thank you. Yes, yeah, so it's like triad, wait a minute. <laughs> um, the uh, Of the father, you know, like the speaker's father, the holy father, and then here, like the lover, um, the kind of wayward man. Um, and that, uh, even that kind of like capturing of a trinity, um, an inability for the speaker to understand how these things might work in this, in, or separately from one another, is this kind of like follow through um, from, from the speaker's um, upbringing. Um, there's also uh, reuses of various biblical myths or parables and then creations of um, the speaker's own myths and parables that are in the same way and then in intended to enact. Um, uh, there's something to be learned from this, um, but I'm not gonna tell you exactly what that, um, what that is. Um, and then there's also kind of nightmarish elements of, of how the speaker imagines God or God's environment. Um, the Trinity is as much a way of seeing as it is a haunting for the, the speaker. Um, and so that, that becomes part of it as well. So at this point, would you be willing to read the poem from which the title of the volume comes, Love Poem So Tall It Ends in Heaven? Sure. Probably the most haunted <laughs> of the poems. Love Poem So Tall It Ends in Heaven. A man I loved kept a folded square of masking tape in his pocket. He did this only for a year. His masking tape was bright, orange, and fraying. As evidence, coroners had used it to attach to his father's calf the rope his father had used. This man planted the tape in our yard when the year was done, and from it grew 13 beams. From these beams, rafters grew, ropes uncurled from these rafters, and fathers hanged from the ropes. Over the fathers, a roof blossomed like a shield, and against it, a ladder leaned. The ladder was so tall, the man I love said it must have ended in heaven. Down from the ladder, an angel scurried while we slept. In its mouth, it carried torn strips of tape. The angel pressed this tape on the calves of the man I loved like bandages. Each morning, I removed the tape. I was careful not to wake him. Each morning, he'd walk through the garden of swaying fathers. He'd kneel beside our rosemary bush. He'd rub its leaves in his hands. He'd ball his hands in his hair to scent it. He wanted just to keep his earthliness with him. In hell, this is the only prerequisite. Uh, this poem is a good example of a, a kind of recreation of imagery of uh, inherited traditions uh, to create a new mythology. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about the form of this poem? It's quite an unusual form in the volume. Uh, it's almost a concrete poem. Mm. The poem is written in a kind of column across the two pages that 
uh, it appears on. Would you say a little bit more about the the form of this poem as you understand it? Yeah, um, as I understand it, it's maybe a really important caveat. This is, you know, part of the reason that this became the title poem is because it was one of the poems that when I wrote it, especially, I was a little unsure of what it meant. Um, and I was trying to work toward that, especially considering all of this kind of like emphasis on surmise, um, on really getting um, something from, uh, you know, from an environmental impression or, or, or what have you. Um, and so this poem existed in this kind of nebulous way. And in its first iterations, you know, it was like in couplets at a certain point, it was in tercets. Um, and then I broke it out to look more um, like a ladder. Um, and it was very ugly um, because it wasn't justified, which isn't to say that it's, you know, like a terribly attractive poem <laughs> in terms of its kind of concreteness now. Um, but it has this kind of stable ladder-like quality. Um, and then within that, I've put to differentiate um, between lines, these slashes, um, and the length of lines, with the exception of, I believe, the last two, is nearly stable from the perspective of syllables, so that it's all, I believe, 20, and then the last two lines are 9 and 11. Um, uh, and so that's how some of the, the form worked out, um, this kind of it becomes almost sonnet-like in terms of the number of lines, but um, squished into this kind of different form, which became a kind of point for me, maybe more behind the scenes, but in the writing of the poem of, I want to take this one form, this one um, uh, you know, tradition, this kind of landscape, um, and, re and really massacre it <laughs> or make it into this nightmarish um, other kind of not quite what it is where everything that appears in it is kind of a shadow of what what it's inheriting hmm, that's fascinating your your relationship to form i think in the volume overall is really quite varied and interesting i mean i'm thinking at this point about ars poetica for the devil where every line has three words in it mm. and um you know there are there are poems that are couplets uh, some of them are uh, some of the poems have very short lines some of them have long lines and then in the third section of the volume um a wedding of jackals which is a pivotal part of the narrative arc it's all prose mm -hmm. so to say a little bit about form more generally for you as a poet but also i'm particularly interested in why that third section needed to be in prose mm. um I'm going to answer the first question or the second part of the question first. Um, that poem began very firmly um, in at UO um, in Garrett Hongo's um, narrative and lyric poetry um, uh, class. It began as haibun, um, and then at a certain point, I took out um, uh, the haiku. I almost left one of them. Um, it was precariously kind of <laughs> um, on the edge of the knife before getting the axe. Um, uh, but that's kind of what brought it in originally to that that prose form. It was about narrative and it was about deeply moving into narrative and using the space of narrative in order to um, in order to disclose, in order to say, okay, um, I might not be able to draw the conclusions that I want to from the story, but I do have control over telling the story. Um, and you know, the extent to which it needed to be um, in prose form, I played 
with breaking it up into lines. Um, they used to be the, the sections are in kind of depending on the sections, short like paragraphs. Um, they used to be in just one big paragraph each. Um, and so there was kind of that formal, um, I don't know what to call it, evolution um, to, its, to its current. Um, but the, the, the kind of point of that, that narrative drive um, was one, um, a major part of the kind of last third of my journey there at UL. Um, and two was toward this idea of let me tell and also by telling or control the story. Um, other kind of movements of form in the book have a kind of reverse relationship, which is to say, instead of kind of my kind of, I don't know what to call it, luxuriating in a form and then letting the form uh, hold whatever I've decided um, to say, um, the opposite was true, which is to say I would put strictures on what it is that I wrote and then wrote toward those or given those um, um, those strictures. And so there's um, a kind of, I don't know why this is the image that's coming to mind. It's a little visceral, but there's a kind of gag element to um, what's going on in some of those those formal decisions of like, I can only go so far. I can only say so many words in Ars Poetica to the Devil, at least um, per per line. Um, and so there's there's that kind of tension that I wanted to develop then in later kind of revisions between those two sections, where the one is not you know like is quite reserved by comparison to the the fully disclosing uh, pro section of that Wedding of Jackals poem. Fascinating. So at this point, um, could I ask you to read one more poem for us? Um, the, the final love poem in the volume, which is called Love Poem. Sure. Love Poem. Imagine a day alone and call it love. Let it mean all things are equal. Let it mean you have eaten, you are filled by an assortment of quick sale meats. Use the word delicious. For yourself, use the word collected, complete. Let it mean all things revolve around a wet, living stone. Call it heart. Let it mean that earth moves with you, loop after loop. Never mind what you are known for or last night's dinner of cheese bread. What is sadness? Think sadness was a friend across the table. Never mind the man she named for you over dinner on Friday. What was his name? Anthony? Never mind Anthony. Anthony is blonde and blue-eyed and a waiter. And it said, quite funny, think Anthony is not a day alone, though, not love. Let this break your heart, but don't say break your heart here or anywhere. Nobody wants to see it wild and out. In this poem, ask, what heart let it be the wet living stone revolve around it this way alone and alive remember you are equal to anything equal to the earth say apart for all your murmuring i imagine you're textured like a persimmon say little heart if you are at all like a persimmon i'll seal you in a jar of lime water to rid you of your unbearable flavor say little heart which of your ventricles is your favorite your hardest worker drop your little heart in a mason jar and set it aside for the day you will be truly in love then won't you you will be complete this poem won't mind what you're known for 
or what you've brought with you. Nobody will love you like this poem does. Let this poem fill you. Let it wash your hair. It will use egg whites and honey. Maybe you'd like something different. Tell this poem what you want. Anything. This earth. Say, little heart, let me thumb you through until all your stones are turned and all your meats sold. Say, little heart, let there be a primacy in you. Let there be a primacy in you. A poem can get to. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Um, I feel compelled to ask you, um, this is the final poem that announces itself as a love poem. And you you uh, mentioned that it's one of the more uplifting poems in the volume. Um, <laughs> Might not be saying much. <laughs> how, how, what kind of love poem, how, how would you characterize the kind of love poem this is? A self-love poem. I think more than anything else, it's a poem that is very defensive of its definitions, what love means, um, and that draws a very hard border around who can enter into that definition. And anybody outside of the speaker cannot, not even good old Anthony. Um, and so, you know, it's about this kind of being alone, being able to find and name love within aloneness. Um, so that the speaker can kind of, after a great journey that hasn't worked out very well, venture out again. I think there's a little bit of RuPaul in there, probably. If you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anybody else? I can't. I can't get away from it. <laughs> um, but that becomes true for the speaker. You know, like there has to be at least a starting point, a primacy, um, which is integral for for them for in in poetry, um, where. There is some form of love and self-love and aloneness that makes the other considerations or crises that they're experiencing um, manageable. Well, Jamie, that's a great place for us to end. We've come to the end of our time. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this volume and about your work. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. I've been speaking with poet Jamie Ringleb, an assistant professor of English at Meredith College in Raleigh, North Carolina. Ringleb's debut collection, So Tall It Ends in Heaven, was published by Tin House in 2022. On January 18th, 2023, Ringleb will give a reading with poet Alicia Pir Muhammad as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Thanks so much for watching. Mm -hmm.